0: Let's pray, commit our time in God's Word together. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your steadfast love for us that You are able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. We thank You for the time we can come together to sing Your praises, to reflect on Your Son, Christ, Jesus Christ, our hope in life and death our only hope, who delivers us from the power of sin and uh, becomes the basis upon which we enjoy and inherit every good thing that you give to your children. Lord, prepare our hearts this morning. Open them. Help us to be obedient. Open our minds. Give us wisdom to understand your word and apply it and to walk obediently by faith, as sons of light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. We will be in chapter 2. It's always fun to do stuff like this. You know, when you finish a book of the Bible, you kind of enter a transition period. You're able to cover a few uh, peripheral issues or even perhaps things that have been on my mind for a while. And I think. Uh, When we go to the book of Revelation, there's just so many treasures there to uh, discover and to apply. And uh, regardless of what your view of this book may be, uh, it is doubtless that there is in here an immense uh, treasure of truth that will benefit and strengthen the church. And it's also occasion to and not neglect the things that we have just been studying. You know, we talked through First Peter, we spent over a year in that book, and one of the things we uh, highlighted regarding that book is the fact that First Peter really tells us all about the Christian life. There's very little uh, regarding our life in Christ that we do not learn from First Peter or elsewhere in the Bible that is not somehow connected to First Peter. So in five short chapters, we're able to study very carefully and and take in immense amounts of truth regarding the Christian walk. And so one of the reasons that we draw our attention today to the book of Revelation and the church in Pergamum or some translations say Pergamus in particular is because Pergamus is known as the compromising church you want to understand that in modern parlance, you could maybe say the pop church or the relevant church. But if we uh, read this letter that Jesus Christ himself writes to the church in Pergamum, we see the urgency. <clears throat> in fact, the entire letter or entire book of Revelation is one of urgency. In the opening verse, we read this. If you want to turn to chapter one really quick, Uh, It says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave Him to show to His bondservants the things which must soon take place. It's kind of bookended in the final chapter where the Lord Jesus tells His people, Behold, I am coming quickly and My reward is with Me. So whatever is going to happen in the book of Revelation is going to happen or at least start very soon. And so Jesus has... A word to his churches. And note that each of these letters, regardless of what church they are primarily written to, are meant to be read to all of the churches. It is definitely true that no matter where your church is spiritually, you want to guard it from compromise. That is my heart for Emmaus Road. I want us to be a church without compromise, and I realize that as we're growing in the Lord, there's always going to be a little bit. One of the major components of sanctification, of being conformed to the image of Christ, is rooting out compromise, is rooting out all that is hypocritical and double-minded and not of faith within the church. And so we want to guard against it and take heed to the Lord Jesus' warning to this church. And I think this is a very pertinent letter, especially uh, considering the times in which we live, considering the state of the church, especially the American church. It It is a church, by and large, fraught with compromise, stricken with all kinds of hypocrisy. And it could, I mean, we could take a whole day simply going through the many catalysts for compromise and the church, again, releasing its hold on Christ not taking its stance on the gospel uh, relinquishing its view on biblical authority and many other different compromises i think those are the main ones but i think one of the things that is characteristic of the church today one is a desire to not be persecuted a desire to not suffer right we talked about that a lot in first peter upon finding out that suffering for a faithful church for faithful body of believers is something that is inevitable. And why we don't go looking for it, we understand that if we are to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, we will be persecuted. It is only a matter of time, not if, but when. And I think walking hand in hand with that fear of persecution is the desire to be accepted, right? The desire to be relevant, the desire to have a place in the, a position in the marketplace of ideas. And I would say that this is an ungrounded fear of a church who really has a true fear of God and a love for Jesus Christ. Note something very important, that when we, when the church stands as a witness, when we go into the marketplace of ideas, that is conquered ground. We don't have to worry about being relevant there, because the church is relevant, and here's why, is because Jesus Christ owns the marketplace of ideas. It's His ground. He gives us quarter to go and proclaim the gospel. That is why, precisely for the last 2,000 years, no matter how the devil and his minions have assailed the church, she rises triumphant. She endures. Even through times of ignorance, unfaithfulness, whatever challenges may arise, the church remains and the church stands strong. Why? Because the Lord Jesus enables her to stand. But going back to this book, I want us to be a church that grows in such a way to where we root out compromise. And we're able to stand firm in those truths that were once for all delivered to the saints. And so let us go now to the third letter. The third letter that the Lord Jesus Himself sends. This is the church in Pergamum, book of Revelation, chapter 2. Let's start in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... To him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. May the Lord be blessed by the reading of his word. So there's a blessing for us in this, and I take, uh, I, I take the, uh, the view that says this church in Pergamum was the primary church in focus. I do not believe we have sufficient, sufficient grounds to look at each of these seven churches and somehow impose uh, a hyper allegorical uh, interpretation on it i think we can we we can take it in plain language nor do i believe that this these these seven churches somehow represent seven phases of the church age and now we're living in laodicea the last age the lukewarm age i believe that you will find each of these things present all throughout church history. You will find compromise. You will find dead churches. You will find loveless churches. You will find lukewarm churches. You will find all kinds of churches across the spectrum all throughout church history. So what we want to concentrate on is what the Lord Jesus intends to say to this particular church at this particular time in the first century. That is the primary audience but though that is so, there is much that we can glean from it. Again, this is, this is, this is a message that is timeless. It is for all churches to learn from. But it is written primarily to the church in Pergamum. So we'll break this down. Again, no, no, no fancy outlines. I'm not going to give you like three key points at how to, how to avoid compromise in the church. We're going to see what the Lord Jesus says, and we are going to focus on that today, and Lord willing, as much text as we have, we will uh, finish today. So let's pay attention to what is said. So first of all, we have the congregation. To the angel of the church in Pergamum Right, looking at verse 12. So I take angel as messenger, maybe, maybe a teaching elder, a pastor of that church. He is meant to take a message to this church in Pergamum. So here we have the town or the city of, of Pergamum. I would say a very prominent town. Pergamum, of course, was along that route. If you, if you look at Asia Minor, you see the way that, that these letters are dispersed. They are on a particular route that can be delivered. So Pergamum is thought to be from the word Pergos, which means, or Pergos, which means a tower or a fortified structure. The idea in mind is that it is a high place. You could say that it is geographically a high place, and even metaphorically, it is seen as some, some kind of highbrow city, sophisticated, very Hellenistic, very Greek, located about 100 miles north of Ephesus in Asia Minor. It is, it is one of the cities here, but is not on any major trade route. According to Pliny, he says of Pergamum, by far it is the most distinguished city in Asia. Right, very highbrow. You know, the intelligentsia are there. Things that we think are cultural, right? things that are important in the worldly sense. Pergamum was Asia's capital city for 250 years, since 133 BC. Built on a massive conical hill. Again, prominence. It was. It was high. It was very noticeable. According to William Ramsey, beyond all the other sites in Asia Minor, it gives the traveler the impression of a royal city, the home of authority. So you see how that could go to your head. <laughs> the rocky hill on which it stands is so huge it dominates the broad plain of the Caicos River Valley so proudly and so boldly. You know, we think of Colorado Springs in that respect, do we not? All right, we're at the Front Range, beautiful mountains rivers, valleys, all that is thought of as scenic and beautiful and majestic, right? We love it here. Most notable of Pergamum was its enormous library boasting 200,000 volumes. It was second only to the Library of Alexandria. So even they placed back then, right? Nothing new under the sun. Even they placed a huge premium on education, right? No Knowledge, The staunch defender of Hellenism, the Greek way of life, of course, which ran very counter to life in Christ, say impossible to have your foot in both worlds, and yet that is the compromise in view here that the church of Pergamum is facing. And characteristic or consistent with the other churches, it is yet another center of paganism and idolatry. You have temples there to Zeus, Athena, Asclepius, Dionysius, And emperor worship dating all the way back to Caesar Augustus. And we have no biblical record of the church's planting. We just know, based on scripture's account, that there was a church there in the first century. Um, From Acts chapter 16, verses 7 through 8, we read of Paul's travels through Mysia, which is very close to Pergamum. So we know that at some point it was planted, but we don't have any extra data detailing who specifically founded this church. All we know is that currently, at the the writing of this letter, the gospel is exploding in Asia Minor. There are churches all over the place, and where the Word of God is preached, there there is the Word that is not of God that is also proclaimed with equal fervor. Today, the city of Pergamum is known as Bergama, or Bergama. And for my studies, even this morning, I found a a correspondence of a possible effort to actually plant a church there, but there was no there was no update. So of course we learn through this, through history, that it shows that when the church seeds seeds ground, it is very difficult to regain that ground. All the more reason for the church not to compromise, to not be foolish to the point where we just buy the spirit of the age and make it our own or try to try to reconcile it with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, we have one King and one Savior, and we are not to be carried away as captives by the prevailing philosophies of this world. Rather, we are to take every mind captive to obedience to Christ. We are to declare His Gospel, to proclaim His Lordship, and announce that there is salvation in no one else. That is what uncompromise looks like. So that's the congregation. You see a church here. Secondly, we have the Christ. The congregation and now the Christ, the one who is ultimately writing this letter. Look at verse 12 again. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. So this should automatically grab your attention. In, in, in 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 the first chapter, we are presented with the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. His presence is is such that even John can barely look at him. He falls down as a dead man. He turned, or he heard, he turned, he looked, he saw, he fell. So powerful and holy was his presence. He is the one, among other things, who has, as described here, is a sharp two-edged sword. See, and there is an association with how Christ is presented and what the experience of the church is. Now note that Pergamum is the first of the seven letters to the churches where Christ is actually presented in an ominous manner. He is the one who has the sharp sword. See, that's it. It's one description of him. He is the one who holds the sharp sword. I would say if a church is full of compromise and gives quarter to those who proclaim false gospels and lead the people of God into unrighteous acts as is described in this letter... Beware. Be afraid. You stand in a very precarious position. So we see this Jesus as the one with the sharp sword in chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 16. Now, scripture has two primary words for sword. It's pretty significant. The first is known as the Machaira. This is the Roman short sword. If you see any, uh, you know, maybe movies like Gladiator or something. Come on, you all know you've watched it before. Gladiator, the uh, the, the hero Maximus fights with a short sword. That was your, your typical sword in Roman times. It was only able to be wielded with great skill, built for close quarter combat. You didn't want to go into battle with that sword unless you really knew what you're doing. This is the sword described in Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Sharper than a two-edged Machaira. But here in the book of Revelation, we have quite a different sword. We have something called the Ramphaya, which is a broad sword, not a Roman short sword. So this sharp two-edged sword in view is meant primarily not for comfort, but for judgment. If you look to the end, near the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 19, this sword, this Ramphaya appears again. In verse 15 of this chapter, we read this. From his mouth, speaking of the Lord Jesus, comes a sharp sword, that with it he shall strike the nations, and he himself shall rule them. Now typically this passage is taught, there's very many views on this passage as well as the one we're in today. Typically thought that this passage in Revelation 19 refers to the second coming. I actually believe for various reasons that I can get into later, that this is a present reality. But the sword is going forth now because Christ is ruling the nations now. And he, right now, is cutting down his enemies. So don't be compromised, of course, to the point where you are reckoned, at, you are treated the same way as an enemy. That's a huge point that Jesus is making here. By compromising, you are identifying yourself with the idolatrous, unbelieving world. You don't want to be standing there when Christ is reckoning judgment to the unbeliever. See, this language here from Revelation 19 is strikingly similar to what we read in Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm that I believe is parallel to what is happening in Revelation. I would actually say Revelation 19 is a fulfillment, real-time fulfillment of Psalm 2. So you don't have to turn there, but in verses 7-8 through in Psalm 2 we read this, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give to you the nations as an inheritance, and the very ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. An oxymoron, we, th- we don't think of at times as this. Shared power, right? That is, that is just fantasy. That is fairy tale. The Lord Jesus will not share His power with another. He will not share His glory with another. Right now, He is breaking the nations in His own way, in His own sovereign power, with a rod of iron. How do we know this is going on now? Well, you look in Revelation chapter 1, verse, verse 5, and it says this, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. The ruler now. Not the future king. The now king. The now cosmic sovereign over all who is exercising His judgment on the nations. And who is also saving the nations through the proclamation of the gospel. And this is what is happening. And this is the sword He wields. This great heavenly broadsword through which he brings judgment. So after going through all of this, what's the point of a church? First and foremost for Pergamum, but then by extension, any other church. It is this, is that the church in Pergamum is in danger. A church that compromises is in danger. Though a tower, though high and lofty, it will be cut down. Remember the passage in 1 Peter 4, verse 17. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Right, Judgment has come to the church. A purifying judgment. Right? The church will not be spared. And if you take an early view of the book of Revelation, you could see this as parallel with the judgment that Jesus is about to unleash on the apostate city of Jerusalem. He will judge that city and far be it from the church to be in a place of such careless, unfaithful complacency that we get swept along with it, swept away with it. We don't want that to happen. See, it's easy for a compromised church to say, because if a church is compromised morally, it's going to be compromised intellectually. And in the church's complacency, it will say, well, judgment is for this. It is not for me. Surely I will escape it. Surely the Lord will not judge me. I will be spared. I will be spared. What unbelieving naivete is this? To think that we can act like the world consistently, to, to all but identify ourselves with them, if not in word, at least in deed, and think that we will not be swept away, that we will not be judged, that as the Lord describes elsewhere, that we will not, that, that our lampstand will not be removed. Believe the Lord when He says that will happen if we do not repent. Think of a, a song sung by Johnny Cash, it's called, God is going to cut you down. says this, well, you may throw your rock and hide your hand, working in the dark against your fellow man, but as sure as God made black and white, what's down in the dark will be brought to light. You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. So we heed this warning, the warning to not be swept away, the warning to not be cut down as an unbeliever is cut down. See, what are we called to do, friends? We're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to not be unmindful of God, to not live in an ungodly way without thought of Him, without thought of His sovereign grace and power and authority, to not grow complacent and stony hearted. Think about what Paul says in Romans 11, because this is for the Gentiles who have been grafted in to God's assembly. Romans 11, verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say, then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Note that that was one of the things which Jesus remarks about this church. He says, you did not deny my faith so that there is an understanding of how we stand. But but note this, Paul goes on. Do not be conceited, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, branches, he will not spare you either. So if a church is compromised, compromised to the point to where it is all but unbelieving, thereby it proves itself to not truly be in Christ by faith, and it will be cut off as the rest of the unbelievers. See, so I don't say this to try to give you a worldly kind of fear. We're looking for a fear that leads to repentance, right? that we would revere God, that we would honor Him, that we would have a holy dread of Him, that He is present with us, walking amongst the churches, taking care of the churches, looking out for them. And remember, everything that Jesus says to the churches, He says for our good, even though it's hard to take. See, a compromised church, friends, doesn't know how to take it. Doesn't know how to take correction. Does not know how to reflect on truth. It's only concerned with how the the truth makes him feel. But that is that is the Christ and that is how he presents himself. Right? Here is the commendation. Verse 13, I know where you dwell. (laughs) Ha ha. We we are to take comfort in that, that Christ knows. But on the other hand, that is kind of scary. I know where you dwell. Ever hear someone tell you that? Hey, I know where you live. I know where to find you. I know how to comfort you. There's no escape. This is the sense we get. Christ knows all. There's nothing out of His reach. I know where you dwell. And He says it's where Satan's throne is. So even then, he is acknowledging the, the great challenge that the church in Pergamum is enduring. He says this, Though you dwell where Satan's throne is, you hold fast to my name. Right. So within this commendation, there is a, there is a comfort that Christ knows that this, the church here has been described as fighting the dragon in his own nest. And Jesus is aware and involved in that fight standing with his people. But there is a very, again, a grave description of the city of Pergamum that Jesus calls Satan's throne. And I would say in a general theological sense, Satan's throne is descriptive of the pervasive idolatry in that city. In any city, there is going to be an amount of idolatry, worshiping of false gods. We face that even today. We are proclaiming the one true and living God in the face of that. But I think specifically that is unique to the city of Pergamum that stands uh, against the other cities, it's a little different, sets it apart, is there's three particular things that explain this rather stunning description. First of all is this, in Pergamum you had the temple of Zeus, right? And remember this, that Satan operates in counterfeits, right? He's a pretender. So he is happy to give a counterfeit Jesus. So in the temple of Zeus, we do have that. We have a, a counterfeit king and a counterfeit savior. Right? In 1871, an altar was discovered bearing this very inscription, Zeus the Savior. So as king of the gods in Greek thought, he would have stood out as a chief rival to Jesus. See, in the Greek mind, you would think, no, it is, it is Zeus. He is the ultimate God. He is king of kings, if you will and the Christian comes along and says no Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords which would get a lot quite a bit of blowback from the resident Greeks secondly we have the temple of Asclepius which was a temple for healing right whose symbol oddly enough was a snake and there again you have counterfeit healing the healing that the healing of the cross right again once again a, a counterfeit salvation so you notice things that are so Pertinent to our understanding of the gospel and Christ's redemptive work are put on full counterfeit display in this city. Thirdly, we have the temple of Caesar, which I think would, would 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 count as a counterfeit confession, right? Caesar is Lord, and that was the cause of all kinds of persecution in the early church. And so, this image of Satan Satan's throne in Pergamum reflects also Revelation's overall testimony of how Satan characterized as a dragon, gives political authority in order to persecute the people of God. So in a city like this, if you are walking with God, you will stick out like a sore thumb. It will be hard to hide. It would be hard for your faith in Jesus to go unnoticed because the idolatry is so woven into the fabric of Greek life in a city like this, your absence from those activities would not go unnoticed. And yet there is perseverance. Within this comfort, we also have the Lord Jesus acknowledging perseverance. He says to them, you hold fast to my name. See, the name of Jesus, everything that name comes to represent, his, the fact that he is Lord, that he is Savior, we talked a lot about that in 1 Peter. And so he is therefore seen as a rival to, to present authorities. But to hold fast to the name of Jesus in times of compromise simply means that we identify with his name we cherish his name we guard his name and we proclaim it those are the things that keep compromise at bay see we hold fast we cling to it right we talk about a fear of god that clings that knows the the, the terrible consequences of letting go and not holding fast to christ but then he says this you did not deny my faith not only did you hold fast to my name but even the teachings, even Christian doctrine, the apostles' doctrine that it came to be known as. You did not deny this, he says. You have not denied the gospel, right? The whole counsel of God, the faith, points to Christ as the ultimate fulfillment of divine revelation. In Jude 1-3, we read about the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so that faith was upheld, preserved, and taught in this church so we would say you know so far so good the church of uh, of pergamum is batting a thousand they're doing they're doing some many, many things right holding to the faith not adding to it not taking away from it and not denying it by silence right sometimes we say silence is consent no they, you you would say that to to not deny the faith is to give vocal uh identification with it That we hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and follow Him. And yet, even within this comfort, there is a cost involved. There is a cost, even up to death. Listen to what Jesus says. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you. So character spotlight here, this man Antipas. Very little is written about him. Very little is known about him. Even after uh, going to several commentaries, I found very little, but one old tradition tells us that he, is that he was roasted alive inside of a brass bowl, a very painful way to die, often reserved for for the worst of transgressors. They'd put you inside this bowl that was cast in brass, and they would put a fire under it, and it would basically slow cook you to death. They would even attach a pipe going out through the sculpted bowl's uh, nostril or mouth, so that Those in attendance of this execution could hear the screams of the victim. It was a terrible, terrible thing to witness, almost on the level of public crucifixion. Served as a warning. And if you were a Christian and you saw what befell Antipas, you might second guess whether or not you're up for following Christ. You may count the cost yet again. That's why we have this description, even in the days, right? A time of ramped up persecution when it got really bad and the temptation to deny Christ rather than suffer was greater than ever. Terrible times, hard times, but we have this model of faithfulness. But I think, you know, in light of all we know, rather than speculate who or what Antipas was, it is best to know him by Christ's description, My witness, my faithful one. See, regardless of the test that we face as believers, the most important thing is that Christ looks upon us and says, mine, that he claims us as his own, That he acknowledges us that we belong to him. That more important than our name is how Christ sees us. And he repeats this again, where Satan dwells. Could be that Antipas was martyred in a pagan place of worship in this city, but simultaneously, what a public witness to the strength and power of the gospel that even in his time of death Antipas was faithful to the end thereby giving public testimony that following Christ is worth everything more precious even than his own life and what an example that remains for the church of Christ today but here we come to verse 14 put your Bibles again Here we have the bad news, the condemnation. But I have a few things against you. Do not take this lightly, friends. If the Lord of heaven and earth has something against you, believe me when I say you would want to know. You would want to know what that was. I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. That's just the first thing. There's another but see, when the church compromises in the way that Pergamum is, it denies the power of God by being drawn in to the very things from which it was delivered. Perhaps this is pressure from Antipas' execution. So here's the first compromise. You have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. Okay. What is this teaching of Balaam? Now, a remarkable thing about the book of Revelation is that it is self-interpreting. You want to know what something is or where something comes from? you you compare Scripture with Scripture. There are hundreds of allusions and references to the Old Testament. So, where do we go? We go to Scripture itself. Well, let's figure this out. Who was Balaam and what did he teach? Here's the man. Balaam was a what you could call a sorcerer for hire, right? A journeyman, as it were, from Mesopotamia one man says, as Beal says, Balaam's name became a catchword for false teachers who for financial gain sought to influence God's people to engage in ungodly practices. Now these ungodly practices can come in a variety of forms. Particular to the church of Pergamum was going back to idolatry and sexual immorality, which of course were linked, especially in the first century, probably the same today. seems to They seem to, to run hand in hand with, with one another. I mean, we see this, I think, mostly within confessing American evangelicalism. We do see sorcerers for hire. Right? Give me this amount of money, write a check for a $1,000, and I'll pray to God, I'll send you a miracle handkerchief or miracle water, and all your dreams, your dreams will become true. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and everyone will be envious of you. We see that, I think, mostly from people who claim to love the Lord Jesus and are peddling a different gospel in order to benefit themselves financially. I think, it's, uh, I think it's Kenneth Copeland who has an estimated net worth of $750 million. $750 million preaching a so-called gospel and demonizing anyone who would question his legitimacy as a minister. And yet there we have it. It's shameful that the church tolerates that kind of madness But back to Balaam, he appears in Numbers chapter 22 through 24, and he's killed in Numbers 31.8. His story is this, he was hired by King Balak, who is the king of Moab, to pronounce a curse upon Israel. See, Israel's traveling through the wilderness on their way to, you know, they're bound for the promised land, and so their presence is seen as a threat. And so Balak wants to curse them, so he hires a, he hires a wizard, to pronounce a curse on them. But when Balaam tries to do this, the Lord puts words in his mouth so that he blesses them instead. That is phenomenal. Even, even a false prophet is hijacked so that he blesses the people of God. So that's, what, that's who Balaam is. And here's the teaching. Here's what happens. The curse did not work. They were, Israel was blessed instead. So Balaam attempted an alternate form of cursing, so to speak. If he couldn't curse the people of Israel, he would then corrupt them. And he did it by this, enticing the sons of Israel to go and take wives from Moab. We find this in Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3, and also in Numbers 31, verses 15-16. through 16. So write those down. Those are pertinent to understanding this. This is what Balaam did. And the sons of Israel, indeed, were enticed. And what happened was this ungodly, unblessed union led to idolatry and immorality. And so how does this relate to the church of Pergamum? Most likely, it, this thinking, this doctrine took root in the church so that various members would begin participating in pagan activities of Roman society. Like I said, returning to the very things from which they were delivered. You know, we think of God telling Israel, come out of her and be holy, right? Be devoted to me, follow me, right? Separate yourself from those evil practices. The church is called to do this very thing, right? To repent and believe the Gospel. Repent from unbelief and everything that accompanies it. And cherish Christ. Believe in Him and follow and obey Him. So it seems that those in the church of Pergamum were returning to their old way of life. But there's more to this. They weren't completely deserting the Christian gathering. Even more horrifying is that they were doing both. They came to the place of compromise where they could go and and, and 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 take part in a pagan celebration here by eating meat sacrificed to idols, engaging in uh, idolatrous uh, temple worship, and engaging in immorality. And then they would go and praise the Lord on Sunday morning, right? See, here's the thing. And I should say this is especially true in a city like Pergamum, is that participation was expected not only from the governing authorities but from a society itself that every Roman citizen was meant to be a part of this. Participation was expected. It was demanded and a refusal to do so could lead to social and financial ostracization. We see that on many levels today. If you refuse to go along with this presented narrative from whatever pocket of society, we will make it very hard for you to make a living. We will make it very hard for you to put food on the table. We will make it very difficult for you to be welcome in society. So not only do you have, in this case, members of a church who are participating in the deeds of, deeds of darkness, they are doing so in broad daylight, and you also have a church that is turning a blind eye toward that behavior. Here's the problem. Jesus isn't having any of this. He will not have His church, His bride... with. Which he purchased with his blood, continue to engage in such compromised hypocritical behavior. When we talk about this problem of sexual immorality, we don't have to make an exhaustive list as you know to what, what that entails. We know. It's anything that falls outside of the decree of God regarding his creation. And human sexuality. Anything that falls outside, any sexual activity that falls outside the blessed confines of marriage is immoral. Right? And it is, do I, do I need to, to say how much that has compromised the church even today? It's, ba- it's barely even rebuked, it's barely talked about, it's barely exposed, it's become commonplace in whatever form it takes. Sexual immorality is alive and well, unfortunately, in the American church today. Relationships outside of the sacred bonds of marriage are not only being tolerated, but celebrated. And we are seeing, on top of this, an increasing demand that all people celebrate these perversions as well. Now, I don't want to give you know, merely anecdotal evidence, but I think it's very clear that we see this in the confessing church today. We are seeing it more and more accepted. Right. But listen to what Brandon Anderson says, a homosexual so-called minister who has a, quite, a, quite a following of his own. But he's talking to a group of people and he says this, for those who are in an open or polyamorous relationship here this morning, who might be squirming a little bit because this is an uncomfortable question in church sometimes, I want you to hear me loud and clear as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your relationships are holy. They're beautiful and they are welcome and celebrated in this space. See, this is what is being proclaimed, right? This is what is being taught as normal and acceptable, but also as lovable. We need to celebrate these things. So here we have a counterfeit minister who says these things. And in the interest of time, I don't have to give you I won't give you other examples and quotes, but just to give an example, a real-time example of what the church is standing against. The welcoming of sexual perversion as a normal thing. We're called to hold our ground regarding God's design for human sexuality and for marriage. They are precious to him and they ought to be precious to us and worth defending. I would even say worth defending with our lives. So what do we know about Balaam? Practically speaking, holding to the teaching of Balaam is that one can cooperate with the world and still have fellowship with God and compounding this sin is to do it for personal and financial gain. Listen to what 2 Peter 2.15 describes. <clears throat> Forsaking the way, and this is describing false teachers. Forsaking the way they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, getting paid to lead God's people into sin. Right. Think about this. Does compromise of this nature have a happy ending? It's unacceptable both here and now. Listen to John, 1 John 2, verses 3 and 15. The one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Then you read on in the same chapter, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So you can't, you can't say one thing and then be this. That is an unacceptable testimony. In Matthew 6.24, we read that the words of Jesus, No man can serve two masters. The doctrine of Balaam is an attempt to serve two masters. You realize what happened as when the sons of Israel went to be with the... To, to, to engage in sexual immorality with, with the daughters of Moab, you know what they did after that? They returned to the camp of Israel. They returned to be in the presence of God and thought nothing of it. More on that later, but in Matthew seven twenty three twenty two to 23 we read this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me, you who practice lawlessness. See, it's the, the, the practice of lawlessness is not only bound up in the action itself, but if the church stands idly by and says nothing... And as a church without, con, without any conviction, our silence is content, consent, and we are, in effect, partaking in this lawlessness by saying nothing about it. But those are the devastating results. This, as Jesus says in this very passage, is a stumbling block. This stumbling block is not being offended or upset by the, by the behavior of your brother, but it is seen as a trap or snare that becomes the cause of spiritual apostasy and ruin. A stumbling block is a devast- has a devastating result. And the Lord Jesus, as He is faithful, is guarding His church from this, calling them to wake up and repent. See, the same word is used by Paul in Corinthians regarding how we are to treat a weaker brother. Don't let your liberty be a cause for destroying His faith to be a cause for uh, falling away from the faith. We don't want to do this. We don't want to do this to one another by receiving as commonplace and celebrating sexual immorality within our own midst. And by extension, any other sin, which is any other thing, any other teaching, any other action, behavior, sin, which is contrary to the Gospel. And you think, wow, that's pretty terrible, but there's more. In verse 15, we read this, so you have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, okay? Again, very little is known about this sect, but they appear to have infiltrated a few congregations in Asia Minor. But one thing we have to take notice of, the Nicolaitans have caught the attention of Jesus and he hates them. Don't want to align with them. Various thoughts on who these people were, these Nicolaitans. The word may mean conquerors of the people, but they came into a church and started lording over them in whatever way through their teaching they gained, they were able to gain influence. Some commentators believe they were a heretical sect who followed the teachings of Nicholas, who was mentioned in the book of Acts. But when no matter what, this teaching had certainly conquered the people. Perhaps Nicholas became an apostate denying the true faith and then partnered with this group holding the doctrine of Balaam. And what happened? It's teaching Israel to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols committing sexual immorality. Listen to this. Clement of Alexandria writes this regarding the Nicolaitans. They abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats leading a life of self indulgence. So they're teaching, in effect, perverted grace and replaced our liberty in Christ with license in spite of Him to partake in those idolatrous activities and to engage in sexual immorality. Here's another possibility that this may, this Nicolaitan may come from the Greek word nicola, which means let us eat. See what's going on here eating food sacrificed to idols. Let us eat, let's party, let's be Greeks, and then try to be Christians as well. But whatever theory may be true, it is certain that the deeds of these Nicolaitans were an abomination to Christ, and their teachings fell in step with the doctrine of Balaam. So you have double duty on the challenges to this church. They are being assaulted on at least two sides by the Nicolaitans and the Balaamites. And they, like the Gnostics and other false teachers, abused the doctrine of grace and tried to introduce immorality and a license to sin in the church. We read of the same things in 2 Peter 2.15 and Jude 1.4. What they're doing are related to each other. So if we conclude that the Nicolaitans are a conquering people because it seems that the church of Pergamum is on, definitely on the cusp of being that. What, what we have in view is that the Nicolaitans are lording over the church with a very libertine view of Christian liberty. So on one side, you kind of have the soft acceptance of the Balaamites, that you can indulge in this and be in the company of God's people. But then you also have those who lord over the church. What we call that is spiritual intimidation, telling them, no, you must accept this, you must take part in it, you must celebrate it, and you cannot tell your fellow brother in Christ to repent from it. So imagine this influence growing in, a, in any church, regardless of its, of its size. It's a danger. Right? And it's leading this church astray to where they are at the point of being judged by Jesus himself. And so the words that Jesus speaks shine a light on both the presence of the Nicolaitans as well as their spreading influence. The fact that he hates this and the church is now to stand against it. Yes, the Lord Jesus expects his church to stand firm against ungodly influences. We are given those prescriptions to expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness, to exercise church discipline from 1 Corinthians 5, 9-11, to expel the evildoer from our midst. It's a hard thing to do, but we are called to do it for the sake of the purity of the church. In Galatians 6, we read about rescuing brothers caught in trespasses, right? To restore such a one, also taking stock of our own spiritual estate so that we do not also fall into temptation. This is how we're expected to respond to that, to the presence of compromise. Here's the counsel in verse 16. Therefore, repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. So this is it. What's the solution here? We don't have a three-point sermon. He just says this, repent, right? Stop now, turn away from this. This is not merely a threat. It is a promise. Jesus will be faithful to his word, though stern. And he says, such is the weight of this situation. I am coming to you quickly. In judgment. But again, this is meant to be an encouragement as well as a warning. There is time to repent. It's giving that hope. Stop compromising. Stop living like the world. Stop tolerating those who do. Don't let this compromise be so pervasive and 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 go unchecked any longer. Because Jesus is going to make war against them. See, here's the question for the Pergamum church. In any church rife with compromise, is that when Jesus arrives, what category will you fall in? Notice the, the, the change of person here. Jesus uses the word you know, I know, and then he says where you dwell, right? He refers to the church as you. But then he says, I will make war against them, right? You and them. He is making a distinction okay. between these types of folks in the church. There are there are you who are faithful and they are them who are dragging uh, fellow Christians down in this compromise. Right? Which category will you be? And that is the call of Jesus to His church. Will you be them who I judge or will be you who are faithful and cling to my name and, and, and do not deny my faith and who do not find yourself in the waters of compromise, therefore swept away by them when I, when I show up. See, there is... There is this common, there's this combination here of the Lord's justice and mercy. That though he is at the church with sword in hand, there is still hope, hope of repentance. And it's, we don't know the exact form of retribution that came upon the unbelieving and unrepentant in this church, but we do know it will be devastating and conclusive. If you consider the Old Testament parallel, I know we've got a lot to wade through here. But go back to Balaam's judgment, right? In, In Numbers 22, I'll turn there really quickly. Just mark this reference down. It's very important. Remember, we understand this letter best by going back to the text which the Lord Jesus is giving us. So there's this episode where Balaam is riding on his donkey, right? He saddled his donkey and went with the, with the leaders of Moab. I and mean, then you have this kind of comical scene, the angel and Balaam. So Numbers 22, verse 22, it says this, But God was angry because he was going, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. So this story goes on and, and, and Balaam is about to, after striking, the donkey is about to, wants to kill it, right? But then it says in verse 28, the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? When Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a mockery of me, if there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. But guess what? There was no sword in his hand, but there was a sword in the hand of the Lord. So even then, we see mercy. Balaam, though a false prophet sent out to curse Israel, he is warned with the sword. He has worn the sword with the sword. And then in Numbers 31.8, he is slain by the sword. So don't miss the parallel here. Do not miss the gracious warning. Not only is Balaam judged, but Israel itself is judged. Remember these men who returned to the camp with these idolatrous Wives, if you look at Numbers, I think it's Numbers 25. Listen to this. The Lord said to Moses, verse 4, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may, may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. They're too busy crying to do anything. You see what's going on here? This sin, this terrible sin of idolatry and sexual immorality is being done out in the open. And who's doing anything about it? Right? It's become accepted. It's become commonplace. No one's doing a thing, right? They're weeping. But note verse 7. When Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of congregation and took, and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through the body. Now, I'm not saying start running heretics through just so that qualification is clear, but how do we understand that? How does, how does this penalty of death apply to the New Testament, to the New Testament church? Well, very simple. We warn and then we put those out who are sowing division via false teaching in the church. We put them out publicly. We put them out boldly as a warning to the church and as a testimony against that sin and as, again, a, a, an exercise of zeal for the purity of God's people. And then you go on in this, in, in, in this book of Numbers. Uh, chapter 25. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. I know it's kind of spiritualizing, but you wonder what men and women are, are out there with the conviction to act so that the, the plague is checked. So that the judgment of God is turned away from his church. Who will be those who stand first when no one else is and will call out this unbelieving activity, this immorality, this idolatry that is always trying to press its way into the congregation of God's holy people. Same thing then, same thing now. It's never changed. It's always been an effort of the enemy to try to so compromise within the people of God and the people of God, unfortunately, stand there and allow it. Let it happen. So, who will be that phineas that is that is the call to you this morning. Who will be that man of conviction, that man of action, and that man motivated by a love and zeal for the Lord Jesus Christ to stand up against this gross immorality, idolatry and compromise It's hard it's not easy. but notice that Phineas in numbers twenty five received this. Notice his reward. Verse 10, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phineas the son of El- Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. So just because we are in the new covenant does not mean that the Lord will not exercise severe discipline on his people. If we allow that same compromise to creep in, we will be disciplined. And sometimes our public witness depending on the circumstances, will be completely taken away. We do not want the Lord to cut us down. No, we want to be faithful. Remember, we are the city on a hill. We want to be a light to the nations and walk with Him and not allow compromise to gain a foothold in our midst. So that's the lesson, but let's go on to the challenge and comfort and finish up this text. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's the question. Who has an ear? Because the one who does not have an ear, that is a sign of judgment. So he calls, to, calls, calls his people to attention. Remember in Isaiah 6, 9-10, to not be able to hear was to be dull to the Lord's voice. It was to face Judgment. Same in Jeremiah 5.21, now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. If you have an ear, if you are tuned to the voice of the Lord, then listen. We don't want to be those who are dull of hearing. Same thing with Ezekiel 3.27, but when I speak to you, I will open your mouth and you will say to them, thus says the Lord God, he who hears, let him hear. Listen and respond accordingly. And he who refuses, Ezekiel goes on to say, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. You know, rebels are gonna reb, they're gonna keep rebelling, they're gonna keep doing what they do. But as for you, listen to the word of the Lord. But there is blessing, both temporal and eternal, to the one who overcomes, right? And who is the one who overcomes? What is the victory that overcomes this world? Our faith. So the one who continues to rest in Christ, to be faithful, to trust in Him, it is not too late. To the one who does not cave into the social pressure to compromise, who will not deny Christ to the compromises of pleasure and self-preservation, to the one who will not deny His name and hold fast to the faith without the additions, subtractions, and silence, Jesus promises three things. Now listen to this. They're pretty cool. One is the hidden manna. The second is the white stone, and thirdly is the new name. These are immensely difficult to interpret, but I think we can get an idea. Note, these blessings are both temporal and eternal. Once given, they are never relinquished. So here's the hidden manna. I think, most importantly, this signifies our life in Christ and the fact that he sustains us, he sustains his church through trials and temptations. Its hiddenness suggests that while we partake of it, in part now, that at the end of time, we will experience it in full. It contrasts the immediate gratification of eating food sacrificed to idols unto damnation with the delayed gratification of this feast with Christ, a feast of eternal quality to be enjoyed in this life and the next. Its hiddenness also suggests that it is hidden to those who do not believe. But we know what it is. This mystery has been revealed to us. So just as the manna from heaven sustained Israel in the wilderness, so will God sustain his people as we proclaim the gospel to the nations. There's a lot more on manna, but we'll we'll stop. We'll a lot more background information, but to say this to you today is how it applies. That's what's, That's what I want to emphasize. I think it's hidden also in the sense that it is going to sustain the church in a way that you do not see. Have you ever been surprised by God? You cry out to Him. Maybe sometimes you didn't even pray and He met a need in a very spectacular, unexpected way, unanticipated way. That truth remains. God will provide for His people. He will uphold and sustain His church. He will continue to give us that spiritual food, which, also, which ultimately is Himself. Jesus will continue to give us of Himself the living bread, as the Gospel of John describes Him, that will meet our every need. The bread that is hidden from those who do not believe, but nourishes us in full and strengthens us as His church. So in this, the church will succeed where Israel failed. We will not say, this stinking bread, we are tired of it. No, we will desire more of it and rely on God's heavenly food for nourishment and experience that in full uh, when he returns. Secondly is this, a white stone. Poythras writes, interestingly, pink granite dominated the buildings in Pergamum because it was also available locally. But in the ruins there, one also finds a special, ins- special inscription stones are made of m- white marble which would have to have been imported. These white stones, he, he goes on to say, increase in value because they are rare compared to the pink marble or to the to the pink stones. And so I think we can look at this white stone and see something very special in this, something that is very unique, something that comes from, from without, not from within. See, white stones were used in Jewish courts of law and as invitations to special events. So I think what we can gather from this is that this white stone given to those who, who overcome symbolizes the overturning of the world's condemnation against us and becomes our invitation to life with Christ and ultimate eternal glory with Him. You see, in terms of these these Greek festivals where you're eating meat sacrificed to idols, it means this, as one commentator describes, rejection at the table of demons leads to reception at the table of God. It is being received and known by God that matters, right? In Revelation 19:8 through 9, we read of the marriage supper of the lamb which I believe in some sense signifies the ultimate union between Christ and his people in resurrection glory. See, we we partake of it in part right now, but there is an ultimate there is an ultimacy to it. Where we experience it in its fullness. And what's the main encouragement for us here? That though we are ostracized from unbelieving society for holding fast to the the Lord Jesus Christ, the person who overcomes will never find himself cut off from the presence of God and his Christ. Thirdly and finally, we are promised a new name. This is also promised to the Philadelphian church. Now notice, when throughout Scripture, when God does His redeeming work, when He calls people to Him, when he makes also covenants with him, he changes the name. He changes their name. Almost in a sense that you have been given this name, but I know you as this. Right? Abram changed to Abraham. Jacob, after wrestling with God, changed to Israel. When Jesus meets Simon, Simon becomes Peter. I think that is similar with us as this new name. Whether individually or corporately, will be special in the sense that we will will look at this as pointing to how God knows us. I think think we can also understand this as the, the fact that God knows us as true Israel, his true people, and that we identify with that eternal presence of God in our midst. He calls us by name, right? Behold, I have called you by name. He knows us. That's why it goes on to say the phrase which no one knows but he who receives it. See, we will know it. Points to our identification with being Christ's people, belonging to Him. Good passage for that is Luke 10.22. So this is to be fully known by God. right? And it's a blessing to us. In spite of what afflictions come from the unbeliever, we belong to God. And the sword that is used against His enemies and those who compromise will never cut us off. In fact, that very sword will stand as a guard for us. So again, what, a, what an encouragement against compromise. Right? When compromise comes in, just ask yourself that question. How do you identify yourself? Who knows you? Right? Do you recognize that first and foremost, you are to walk in such a way as to be consistent with the truth that God knows you and has called you to himself? As opposed to buckling to temptation and to the current spirit of the age and to go compromise and engage into the things that they do. Just as Peter said, they're surprised you don't run with them headlong into that, right? And it should surprise us that anyone would compromise in such a way in light of all the blessings and benefits that we have and the sure reward that awaits us. The hidden manna that sustains us, and of course, the white stone in the name by which we identify with our precious Lord and Savior. So I hope that to be a simultaneously a warning to you but also an encouragement to walk with God, to not deny the faith and to hold fast to his name come what may. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your your precious word. It takes time to get through these things and to see them to see the explanation completed, but Lord, we we do know that you are among your church, you're with your people, and you desire, desire for us to be pure, to not compromise, to not fall away in times of temptation or to even be enticed away by the pleasures of this world, both the pleasures and the pressures. These temporal delights which blind us from seeing the, the eternal value of knowing and following you, to be uh, the value of being identified with you. And, that we would treasure these things, Lord, that we would cling to them and ultimately cling to you. That we are known by name. You are our good shepherd and you call us. We identify with you, not with the world. We thank you, Lord, for this hidden manna. So much speculation surrounding it, but one thing we do know is that while hidden from others, it is revealed to us because it is the very things that, that sustains us. And you give it to your sheep. And in that we rejoice, and I hope that our attitude would be that we cannot get enough of it. That as we grow in Christ, we would desire it more and more. Lord, we want to be conformed to Christ. We want Him to look upon us, uh, not with a drawn sword, Lord, but but as a, a Lord and Savior and King who approves of what we're doing because we do it by faith. We do it for the sake of your name and yet we don't use those things to justify compromise. Lord, help us to be consistent. Help us to be full of a heart of love for one another and to encourage one another in uh, times that are no doubt trying. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us first. Help us to be like Phineas, full of conviction ready to expose and root out compromise, even if that compromise begins with ourselves. Help us be faithful, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.